What does it mean to be dog friendly? Is it when a business has a dog water bowl out front or a park designates kayak put-ins that are carefully designed to make it easy for dogs to get in and out of the water? Is it when Starbucks gives you a whipped cream puppuccino for your puppy or when a school teaches children how to safely approach a dog? Our guest today is the founder of Wagtown, a nonprofit that helps communities to be more dog friendly. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. Today in the show, we sit down with Beth Miller. Beth is the founder of Wagtown, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping communities define and become more dog friendly. Through Wagtown, Beth has set standards for the ubiquitous term dog friendly, and they have compiled a multitude of resources to help communities across the United States benefit from having more dog-friendly parks and businesses, curriculums, architecture, legislation, and more. Beth Miller, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to talk with someone who loves dogs. Well, we do love dogs here at Dog Podcast Network, and we consider ourselves a very dog-friendly podcast network. But that term, dog-friendly, is used in so many ways to describe anything that is tangentially connected to dogs. Oh, yes. But you've given a lot of thought to the term dog-friendly, and so what does it mean to you? Oh, boy. Well, you just answered the question for every single person. Every single person has a different idea of what dog-friendly means. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that it is very different from state to state, from coast to coast, from rural versus suburban versus urban. It really is contextual. So when people say, this is the formula for exactly how to be dog-friendly, I would challenge you to say, does this measure up to the standards and the values and the culture of that community? Because they may not be ready for dog-friendliness. I saw some places in the Pacific Northwest where things that I saw there would never work where I am from. Let's see, Redmond, Washington, there's a dog park, Mary Moore Dog Park, which is my ultimate all-time favorite dog park. That one is nestled into a lot of other activities within this park, and it's all natural, kind of, it's it's along this 42-acre slow-moving stream with stand-up paddle waters cruising by you, and there are five put-ins, like you would have for kayaks, but they made them specifically so that the dogs could get in and out, so they have little steps down, and in there I saw chuckets, I saw treats. I saw little kids running around that were, you know, above toddler, but just barely strollers, people throwing toys everywhere, no dogs unleashed, dogs unleashed. Um, it was just this perfect storm of everything you would say not to do at a dog park, right? Mm-hmm. But what I noticed is when I went to communities that seemed to be more authentically dog friendly in terms of checking a lot of boxes as far as, you know, retailers and services and emergency care and, you know, realizing that you don't live in what I call a dog friendliness desert. So you see those dogs and those people, when they grow up in a community where dogs are integrated into your lives and the infrastructure, that yields a different culture and a different kind of person and a different sense of responsibility and a different life for the dog. Whereas, you know, in New York City, it's a completely different scene, right? So there's a dog park in Lake George, New York, that I also always just brag about. It's absolutely beautiful. There's part built environment. They've like all the bells and whistles, chalet. It really looks like you've arrived somewhere special, like a resort and that they really catered to your dog. And that one was an example of, he was trying to find out from a revenue stream perspective, 
how can I get my guests to say it stay longer? Well, he did a survey. They said, put in a dog park. We're leaving because our dogs are filthy and they have nowhere to run. And you know that was sort of a business decision for him in addition to loving dogs. And it turned out to be fantastic. Now, that built environment with the um, you know prefab construction of materials that they jumped through and all the toys, that kind of material isn't really accepted in many areas of the Pacific Northwest where it's much more natural. So we start to see sort of that nature play versus built environment conversation that's traditionally held in the parks and rec industry for children. Mm. Now we're starting to see that as people are moving that along, that when you do move around the country and you go from Carmel by the sea to Phoenix, your expectations need to be that I need to see what's going on when I get there. I need to call ahead. I need to do my homework. And that's what you just mentioned is the problem. If you Google any city in America, you can find an article that says that it's dog friendly. <laughs> Probably not everyone, but I bet it would be tough to find one. Well, give me some other examples or in contrast where they think this is dog friendly, but in another part of the country or the world, it would not be. Well, you'll start to see some instances of prioritization of land and infrastructure space. So, for instance, in Seattle, just in the downtown area, there are 33 dog parks. Now, that sounds like, wow, right? But they are chicken wire with posts and a sign on the side with a poop bag dispenser on the outside of it. It's about four feet, maybe, and it's wobbly. So in many areas, if somebody would say, is this an appropriate dog park? Do you feel this to be safe? I would probably say not really. Uh, there are a lot of ways to get out. It's too short. You know, They didn't have a lot of the basic infrastructure you would see. But that is a solution for a very urban, tight community where people need to have access to open space for their dogs to get them exercise, relieve themselves, and just you know get outdoors. And obviously, that also helps the human. Now, when you take that 33 dog parks with you know, the the sort of sloppy construction that that was in terms of there's no rigidity, there's no ta-da kind of factor. You, you can't really put that into sort of a more bougie community where they want everything to be more of a bistro effect. You see what I mean? So it's, it very much changes. And that's the problem, I guess, for us living in this country and really anywhere is that it's just like saying things are green. Now it doesn't really mean anything, right? Because everything is, this is green, this is green. We're, back in the day, it was like, it's all natural. Yeah, I use that yeah. because it's green. Well, now everything is green. Well, I go there because it's dog-friendly. Well, now, according to Google, 28.7 million hits the last time I checked dog-friendly cities in America. That's how many hits you get. So that makes it sound like it's everywhere. When in reality, it really depends on your definition of that. So with Wagtown and with Smart Dog Park, we're trying to put some sides on that and say, you know, if you don't have access to certain kinds of veterinary care, then you're really not dog-friendly because people don't have the means to properly care for their dog. If you don't have safety nets in your community for people who maybe have struggles in caring for their dog and providing those resources to them, those are things that can hold up a good relationship between the dog and the human and the dog and the community. So it goes for all the way from the dog park to the classroom to the library to the health department. It really needs to be a collective decision to say, instead of taking dog play and dog friendliness and putting it apart from the city, we're going to create something where dogs and their lives are a part of the city and a part of our lives. And everyone benefits from that with, you know, massive amounts of research about the human animal bond and dollars follow dogs. All of those things start to be a factor for economic development. That's why I think we're seeing so many people say, let's use dog friendly. I mean, look at Subaru, right? There are dogs... And if you look at the commercials, now, a lot of this was happening. A friend of mine is a, a stunt dog trainer, and a lot of her dogs are in commercials. And I asked her, I said, 
maybe it's just because I'm in Wagtown, but it seems to me like everybody has a dog in their commercial. Mm -hmm. And she said it is true because during COVID, they could bring in dogs and their trainer, but not people. (laughs) That that was a little uptick there. And then people thought, like, my background is advertising agency. So the rule was like, no babies and no dogs. (laughs) It just makes it take twice as long. And now it's sort of like it's the preferred talent because they know that there's that hit of immediate attention, got them by the heartstrings, and now you put your pitch out there and it's surrounded by fur. So it's, it's a hard thing to resist. Well, it is. And, and we've covered this on other shows where we've talked about the advertising phenomena of people using dogs to sell Subaru and to sell Toyotas and to sell presidential candidates and all sorts of things. And so I'm trying to really understand what is your secret sauce? What's your special? Because your focus is talking to economic development officers for towns across America who want to brand themselves as dog friendly, right? Uh, That's one component of it. But when you take a look at what Wagtown fully stands for, we're looking for places that have better support for humane organizations and animal welfare advocates. And you start to see improved safety because people are more educated and they have infrastructure that protects both the humans and the dogs. And you start to see education in the schools for the kids to better learn how to be safe around dogs, but also how to become better dog owners when they grow up. And then you take a look at, is it welcoming with that infrastructure? You know, we work with people that they call me and they're like, we've been trying to get a dog park in our community for 11 years. And every time we've stopped, it's because we didn't know what we were doing. And that's a good reason to stop. But yeah, you can see where all of those little pieces start to add up. So you're giving people tools so they can make their place more dog-friendly to match the standards of whatever is dog-friendly in their environment. Right, right. And the the problem with dog-friendliness is that everyone wants to quantify it, and we're working on a project right now to do that. And that's difficult. You need to know, is this specific place a good place for my dog? If you look at Denver... They just got rid of their pit bull ban. Mm-hmm. But if you have a dog that you think might be the pit or has been identified as a pit at any time, you have to go downtown for 45 minutes for an assessment that costs $75. And the only qualifying factor is appearance. And I think I read that 86% of people can't identify a dog correctly like that. Mm-hmm. So how is that different from disenfranchising those people and those dogs? Right? So Denver is a great place to be a dog unless you look like this right? Mm. And that's not dog friendly. So we will work with communities that have a breed ban, but only if we are helping them get rid of it. If they have one and they want to keep it, we will not work with them. You know, so when I did my research, instead of saying, this is what I think dog friendliness is, and then building Wagtown around it, I built a structure around all the places that I thought a dog's existence would change things in a community. I call it when you plop a poodle into a town, there's a ripple effect. And it really it touches so many different people. <laughs> There's a people. butterfly. A butter- <laughs> I know. This okay. is the poodle effect. <laughs> That's a tortured version of the butterfly. That's I right. like that. It's the doodle ripple. When you plop a poodle in a town, it has a ripple effect. I absolutely. Like absolutely. Well, it does in our lives, right? I mean, you bring in a dog and you think, oh, it'll be fine. We have a new dog now. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't stop you know, hanging out with it. And it's so cute. And now I'm using my baby voice and I'm talking, you know, it's like it takes over who you are, right? Right. And it does the same thing with the community. And if the community has a history of breed restriction that was born out of something that happened that was violent, um, or if they had a history of dogfighting in there, you're going to see a different attitude than a community that was started based on something like dog friendliness, where you start to see those economic factors chime in when you bring in those different people. So we were in, let's see, Chicago, New York, Washington, Portland, 
San Diego, San Francisco, Tucson, Phoenix, Greensboro, Key West, Orlando, uh, New York City, Lake George, Boston. I mean, it was just like, you know, it was all the places that kept getting a lot of hits because I wanted to immerse myself in those communities and let's make them tick. Like, where is their regional vibrancy coming from, if that makes any sense? So I literally have done more than 600 interviews all over the United States. And I intentionally asked questions that were not about dogs. It was more about how do you make change in your community? What kind of economic success have you had and with what? Do you have hybrid or grassroots or consultant work that's done to take you to the next level in your community? Where do you get pushback? Where do you have opportunities? What's the history of the community? So then you talk with you know public health and public transportation. You talk with travel and tourism and you talk with the school districts. Is that who you were interviewing? You were interviewing government officials in these various areas? Yeah, all those different positions in addition to, you know, schools and a lot of intercept interviews at dog parks. So this and wasn't like play. going up to people in the dog park and like asking them these questions. These were policymakers. Yes. Yeah, I asked okay. dog people too, but I would say three quarters, maybe 80% of what I was doing in terms of the information that I was gathering was dog specific. I wanted more so to see, you know, get a flavor for the dog scene. And then really analyze, okay, so what happened here that were good for dogs now? I'm fascinated. So what are the biggest takeaways that you got from interviewing 600 people in, in these various you know, roles? Well, two things. One is they are always a different person entirely if within the first three minutes of the interview, and you know they don't know I'm there to talk about dogs, but I'm just in their office and I always scan to see if I see anything dog related. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll say, is that your Basset Hound? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's Boone. We love Boone. And then there's always a story, right? And the minute we start talking about dogs, we are instantly friends. And then they talk to me about what their challenges have been and what they hope to do. And they're very much, they're frank about their opinions and very candid about what's happening in their communities. So it's a real icebreaker. And then once you get past that, then you have this like mind-blowing experience for both of us. So I learn a lot about their community But every time I start to ask questions, it kind of has this aha moment, right? Then when you do get into the dog questions, then people are like, well, like dog parks, for instance, okay? So someone called me the other day and they said they wanted to put a dog park in. And I said, okay, I can help you. And why don't you send me the GPS location and I'll Google it to see where you're looking at. And her answer to me was, well, we don't know where we're going to put it yet on the land. I said, okay. She said, but we bought the fence. (laughs) I know. <laughs> not putting the cart before the horse. Not at all. It's like buying your shingles first. And we have this much fencing material, so it can only be in the perimeter. Now, it could yeah. have been from, you know, supply chain issues, so I'll give them a break Economic, there. But, yeah. but that's, not to pick on them, but that's a perfect example of, you know, when you're looking at where you're going to put it. Well, what was the land used before? Is there any overspray of chemicals from any ag or other chemicals that will be coming in, you know, airborne? Hmm. Or is there a school nearby? Is there going to be noise pollution? Do you have camera capabilities there? Is there water to the site? You know, is there any contamination? Has it been tested by the EPA? I mean, is it zoned for that? And that's just picking the dirt, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's such a big conversation. Are there any guidelines that city planners, community planners use I mean, you just rattled off a bunch of things that make total sense. But I would assume that if I was a city planner in, I don't know, Maui County or in Dayton or in, you know, Orlando or in Podunk, anywhere, that they have a common sense of, well, these are the guidelines we look for when building a dog park. Am I wrong? 
Um, unfortunately, you are wrong. There is no centralized place to get resources, materials, order materials, expertise, interviews, AMA sessions, courses, discounts on equipment, reviews of equipment, debuts of innovations for dog parks. So it really does make it difficult because not only is the subject matter expertise not out there, um, you know, save for a couple of uh, webinars that are done by some really strong manufacturers of great equipment for dog parks, you know, that's a customer service on there, but obviously they're looking to hopefully provide equipment for people as they do their project. Whereas you want the the onus to be on what is the experience going to be like here, mm-hmm. right? So start with what's your culture like? What are you expecting from this? How do you use existing open spaces? Are you integrating those or are they separated? So it, it really needs to be custom to every community. So it's going to be hard to say, this is what dog friendly is. Because I know when I was in Little Italy in San Diego, that's where I got the idea for the Wagtown Dog Trail. They had a little trail explaining Italian cultural history. And I was like, this is so great. And what if these were dogs? You know, it looked like the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but they were round, right? I'm like, this would be so cool. So we made one in Dayton. It's two miles long and dogs' names are on them on all the 274 prints. And, you know, it's just a great way to put it out there. But until you think about you've got issues with your schools, your fire department needs help, your police are understaffed, you've got education issues in your higher level education stuff. There's a problem with parking. It could be anything. When you have all of those issues at bay, are you really going to expect your city leadership, your country leadership, the world leadership to say that we're going to put dogs first? Well, now that's where I was going to go next. It's like all of this stuff kind of sounds expensive and we're, you know, definitely we are headed for some more troubling economic times. How are communities going to make these priorities to make something that is super dog friendly versus like, well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's dog friendly. Yeah. Now you bring up a good point. Dog parks have a long history of being associated with gentrification of communities. Mm. In fact, I just was speaking with Cole Ackerman, who wrote an amazing study about off-leash guidelines. And she was working on a project. And as soon as they put the dog park map access that they had for their community on top and overlaid it with the redlining for you know the disproportionate investment in the city by color, by race, right? There are no dog parks in at-risk communities. They're all in the bougie suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. So there again, we have a community that does need more so than the people with the acre yard, right? They need access to those kinds of spaces, not just for the simple thing of like, they have to go potty and then socialization, but that common practice of bringing the dogs together completely changes the character of a community because you start to see, I'm sure you have seen this a zillion times, dogs are like this, the ultimate social lubricant. You know, I mean, think about how many people you know in your neighborhood only because they have a dog, right? Right. I think a lot of people know their neighbor's dog's names more than, speaking from personal experience, uh, than the person's name. Yeah, (laughs) I'm guilty of that myself. Yeah, I'm I'm sad to say. I think a few of our listeners are too. (laughs) Well, it's Uh, always like, hey, Benji's dad, how are you? (laughs) You can always get away with that. And I recognize dogs better than I do people. Yeah, yeah. Well, to to really answer your question about, you know, the ability to quantify that, you know, you can get some qualitative information like I did and some, a lot of research to do on it, but um, they're really, because there are no regulations, because there are no standards, because there is no set expectation, it really comes down to a group of people that probably have no training. And the recent study that I did, 67% of people have no training or learn as you go. 70% don't train any 
materials for volunteers, users, or maintainers on how to read dog body language, how to break up a dog fight, what your uniform can do to affect the dog's personality. And then SMART is safety, manners, awareness, responsibility, and training. So everything that goes into a dog park, in my opinion, should also go into anything else that you're building that's dog-friendly. Well, this is the perfect place for us to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll hear more from Beth and more about the economic benefits of being dog-friendly. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. (laughs) No matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good in this life and the next, and the next, and the next. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Welcome back. So we have talked a lot about dog parks, but let's get into the economic benefits of making dog-friendly commercial spaces. What are the dollars and cents behind that? Mm, that's a great question because, you know, as you pointed out, economy and our mindsets are all in the same space these days. And one of the things that came up in 2017 was this issue of dogs on patios. In the state of Ohio, it was illegal to go on any patio outdoors with your dog, whether it had egress or not, it just was illegal, straight up. So we were connected with a, an organization called Ohio for Pups on Patios and did a lot of outreach and education. And in the process of going through all the research of looking for, is there a public health incident when you have dogs in those spaces? And found research actually in California that said that they looked and they looked and they looked and they could find nothing to show that it would be a public health risk. So after all of that research, then we pulled in some sponsor people that would come in and testify about how that would affect their business. And I know that Mackenzie Manley was one from Max Tavern. She indicated that she has a 20% bump in business on days when she has something to do with dogs. And she's like, if you take this away from me, it's going to hit me hard with what I'm doing because people stay longer, they order more, and they're more loyal when you do have that experience for them. And now on the other side of things, you have the people that don't want that experience. So in my opinion, dog-friendly does not mean that you can take your dog everywhere. There need to be places and communities where there are no dogs. Because not everybody likes dogs. People have allergies. People have past incidents with dogs. They just plain don't like them, right? I don't know how that happened. 
But, you know, we, we need to be respectful of that, right? How much work have you done on the restrictions that many health departments have in terms of animals, you know, pups in the patio, as you call it? Well, it was a big lift. Part of the problem in Ohio is that no one really realized that it was illegal. And one of the uh, Franklin County health inspectors. No was, one meaning restaurants or? No, like no the dog one? people, the restaurants. Everyone just assumed that that was a thing and you either chose to be in your, or you didn't. And actually in the state of Ohio, it was illegal. You couldn't make that decision as a business owner. Okay. So in Columbus, and there are, hmm, how many? There are a lot of counties in Ohio. 88. So each county has its own health rules, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it comes down to that. And then there are state rules, right? So you have your local right. and you'll have the ordinances and all that. Well, this was a statewide. Okay. So nowhere in the state could you do this. Did you help to change the rules or had the rules changed any or why was this possible if the state of Ohio said it was illegal? Well, there was a woman named Lori Arsenault and she had her dog and would love to go to Seven Sons Brewing Company, just a little bar down the street. And they approached her and said, you can't come anymore with your dog. The health department was here and they threatened to shut us down if we allow dogs on the patio again. So she's an attorney and she's like, I don't think so. So she contacted Laura Linnies in Ohio and Representative Lanise and also Senator Bill Coley, they worked on a bill in tandem, and it was to give the decision to the business owner instead of the health department. And so, of course, there are many things that you should take into consideration as you're going to the restaurant with your dog. And they saw that we were obviously championing dog friendliness, which you know naturally you would assume would include access to certain areas with your dog where it doesn't you know, cause a threat. Mm -hmm. So we all kind of got together and reached out. And so we had people from animal welfare all over the state working on this project because it, it really needed to not be about how cute dogs are. Right. You know, it, it really needs to be that's about. Not gonna, that's not going to be very persuasive to, it's the, persuasive to the senators. The and little the, kids. Yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. So, yeah. you know, I have my testimony on, on record with the state of Ohio where, you know, it's like if you want to have Ohio as a state that benefits from the phenomenon of dollars follow dogs, then you have to get out of their way and let people choose to go toward that thing that can help their bottom line. What year was this? That they changed it? Well, that you got involved at this whole, that this whole Pups on Patios. 2017, we started. Okay. And in 2018, yeah, finally we signed in and now we're living the life. <laughs> and that's everywhere in Ohio. Everywhere in Ohio. Now, it's everywhere in Ohio where the management or the owner of the establishment decides to be dog friendly. So it's not. So you can't just bring your dog into a restaurant. No, no. And you should never go in somewhere and assume it. Other than Ohio, where else has this happened? I think we're down to 12 states now that don't have dogs allowed on patios. And from what I've called around different places where they, you know, they do have it. And I asked them, you know, what was it like beforehand? And then most of them said, I don't even remember when we couldn't do it. And chances are, well, we couldn't do it. We were doing it anyway. Right. So it's building things on that spectrum to make sure that you're accommodating the needs of the dog and, you know, make sure that they're safe and things like that all the way over to how is the presence of the dog affecting quality of life in our community. So, you know, that's just an example of one initiative. Air Gustafson is, she's creating this Morty's Bark and Brew where she's integrating education and training along with her park experience in a different way that's much more um, academic and engaging than we've seen in the past. Morty's 
Bark and Brew. Wardy's Bark and Brew in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, with the word brew, it sounds like you were talking about training. It sounds like there's a beer involved. Well, I'm not going to say I wouldn't maybe partake in a, an alcoholic beverage if I went to Morty's, but yeah, it's okay. she's in the very formative stages. So it's so it is a restaurant. It's going to be. It's going to be. Yeah, she's in planning stages, but okay, got it. I'm excited that we're starting to see people recognize dog play spaces and dog integrated places be more filled with activated time instead of just waiting for dogs to come and play. Okay, activated time. Yeah, yeah. If you think about, um, I used to work for a metro park system and they built this huge band shell and this big area for festivals and things like that. And I, at the time, the then executive director looked at the person who was managing that area and said, I want something going on at that place every single weekend and at least three times a week because that space needed to be activated and appreciated. It was a taxpayer-based thing, right? Mm. So we're starting to see that attitude of uh, NRPA, the National Recreational Parks and Rec, they uh, actually listed smart dog parks as a top trend for 2022 because they're saying that we should start to consider dogs as taxpayers and act accordingly. I about fell out of my chair. <laughs> so that's a pretty bold statement. I know. I, I, I think a lot of us can get behind that. Oh, yeah. I mean, just think what the world would be like if dogs were in charge. Well, maybe not. <laughs> so let me ask you about where you see all of this heading in the future you know polish your crystal ball and tell me what you see for the future mm. well in my future in my own delusional possibilitarian mind rose-colored glasses whatever you want to call it is a society where instead of reacting to issues and putting a band-aid on it and saying oh let's put this dog-friendly thing smack it over here and then we'll put this moniker on us instead they would say when we're taking a look at what the experience is, what is the human experience in our community, and how does that involve dogs and other companion animals in the way that it enhances our quality of life, our property values, our public safety, our public health, all of those things kind of come together. We really need to get to a point where at the top level, they're saying, here are all the things we're going to do in our community to become more vibrant, to up our regional game, right? And understanding that the inclusion of a pet like a dog where there's an expectation, and it's increasingly so, to be able to have an ongoing public relationship with that dog, let's start to plan for it. Because I see when dog friendliness goes sideways is when it's not planned and it's just kind of shoved out there. But if what if it was a top-level down kind of thing? Mm -hmm. I mean, Nashville, they went that route, and the mayor actually ran on animal advocacy as part of her platform. So they have new dog parks in there. They have programs for more support systems. They're working with their animal resource centers more effectively. They have a uh, TNR program that they go out with. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty elaborate. And so when you think about that, if you didn't have to worry about all of those issues I just mentioned, just the economic impact of getting ahead of those things is huge, right? If you wanted to control bites in your community, do you have a comprehensive community-wide education program that's in the schools that help kids understand safety and, you know, the stuff that we have. Do we have materials out there with law enforcement? I worked with Cleveland Heights. They developed team kind of mentality with their police department with the local dog walkers. The dog walkers, as you know, know every square inch of their route, right? Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be there. That's not there. That person shouldn't be here. Like, you know, what's unusual? If you see something, say something. Those people are seeing what's happening on the ground. And then you have law enforcement so law enforcement teaches the dog people, this is what warrants a call to 911. 
this is what warrants a call to so-and-so to just say, hey, there's an issue. And here's something you could just make a record of or take care of yourself and just let us know. And then the dog people then in turn train the police officers. This is how you approach a dog. This is what your uniform does to the psyche of the dog. This is what's happening to a dog when their person is in any kind of conflict. And so there's much more understanding and appreciation on both sides of the fence on there. So the more we start to see it's not me against you, it's us working together on everything, that always works better, right? And in this case, we end up with these fringe benefits of longer lifespans and better quality of life in our communities. You can sell your house for more. You can move to more places because you can expect that they can accommodate you and your whole family. So it gives you flexibility. It gives you transferability. It gives you longevity, sustainability, and it can all just because of dogs. I just, I find that amazing. Awesome. Well, that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Well, that is all we have time for on today's show. If you'd like to learn more about Wagtown, you can find a link to it in our show notes. You can also find links to other Dog Podcast Network shows or all the shows on Dog Podcast Network by going to our website, which is dogpodcastnetwork.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want to make sure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe to The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app, where you can find us on YouTube as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha.